new ideas, thought-leading opinions, and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the School Leadership Podcast brought to you by NAHT Edge and NAHT. This month our podcast is brought to you in partnership with our friends at Speakers for Schools and later on in this episode we'll speak with some very interesting and high profile guests who work closely with the charity. Come and chat to us on Twitter at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News. Speakers for Schools is a network of leading figures who want to give something back to young people in state schools. Founded by the journalist Robert Peston, the charity arranges talks in schools to help share unique insights, spark inspiration and create exciting conversation for students with individuals who've come to be seen as leaders in their field or industry. Later in this episode, you'll also hear from the founder of Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales, who shares his thoughts on how schools can best prepare their students for the 21st century workplace, and also from the journalist and writer Fiona Miller, who talks about her work in schools. First, though, we'll hear from Speakers for Schools Executive Director Ashley Hodges, who explains what the charity is trying to achieve through its work in schools. Speakers for Schools is a national education charity. We are UK-wide and we work with state secondary schools across the country to bring in interesting, influential people who've been very successful at what they do to give talks to students. And it's very much about creating a dialogue and getting to share their experience with young people, uh, whether they are a microbiologist who's very famous in their field, to someone like your later guest, like Jimmy Wales, who's the founder of Wikipedia, so entrepreneurs, CEOs and politicians. And the whole point of it, really, initially, we were set up by Robert Peston, the ITV uh, politics editor. It was because he was always approached by public schools to go in and give talks. And he just thought to himself, I went to a state school. Why, why don't I get approached by state schools? And he knows that, obviously, they're very busy. Obviously, they don't have the same links, necessarily. And we wanted to create a kind of bank of speakers who commit to a talk a year and want to be going into state schools and uh, giving their time. And for us, I think, you know, part of this is in terms of what we're trying to achieve isn't just saying, you know, public schools have this, therefore you should have it too. That is part of it. But, you know, 92 or so percent of kids and future talent are coming out of state schools. They deserve to be encouraged and enriched the exact same way as those kids in public schools and and hear from people who are leading and shaping society. And what do you think the schools get out of these visits? And I suppose more importantly, what do the pupils get out of those visits? Yeah, I think this is the interesting thing about these types of more inspiring and um, talks, the ones that are meant to broaden horizons, where it can be a bit difficult to track, but we do ask our teachers what they think comes out of it, and about 96% think their talk have had a lasting impact, and the way we look at that is through whether or not there is conversation after the talk, do they go back to the classroom, do students ask about it, does it come up again? Does it inspire new projects? So we've had students go away and decide they want to do BBC School Report or they might want to start an entrepreneurship club. Uh, Does it help change any student's perception of what they're able to do? And that's, I think, the the big part of it. It's changing perceptions that young people might have about themselves. So for teachers, I think they see the impact when there's a buzz afterwards. And they know it's not going to be 100% of the crowd. But even having a few students walk away and say, Miss, I'm thinking about going into business now really helps and sometimes it hammers on messages they're already getting in school the students I in terms of the purpose of our talks I always say that there's a few different factors to it of course there's the life advice and insights the same you'd get from any speaker coming in 
sharing their insights how do you get to the next stage in life how do you what do you do after you leave school so there's some just really good information and guidance in that but there's also a really important aspect of someone high profile and what I call it is the kind of emperor's no clothes effect where you see somebody successful and you get to assess what you think about them not filtered through your parents or the media which is something that public school kids get all the time you get to see that they're human they're fallible they tell you about some of the mistakes they've made and that makes a student all of a sudden think very differently about themselves and their potential. I know some of our speakers talk a lot about resilience and failure and overcoming issues. And I think a lot of students can sit and see any adult and see, well, obviously you were going to end up that way or you must have had it different from me. So to actually hear that journey and see someone who they usually put on a pedestal can be a really transformative experience for how students think about themselves. So people are listening to this podcast and they like what they hear and, and they hear the speakers and think that's exactly what I want in my school. Um, regardless of whether they're primary background or secondary background, how do they go about getting hold of speakers to come into their schools? So I'm sure lots of people want to do that. Uh, and the follow-up question, I suppose, is once they've got a speaker, how do they make the most of that time having that person in their school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've done about 4,500 of these talks so far, so I feel we can definitely talk about how to make the most of their time. In terms of how you can bring in a speaker, obviously for state secondary schools, uh, they can sign up for speakers for schools, and we really do endeavour to get them a speaker each year. These are very busy people, are very um, successful people who it's hard to get in their diary, but we fight to get them out as far as we can and do about 1,000 talks a year now, so it's absolutely worth signing up. It's also worth signing up because we signpost other initiatives such as uh, free career services, uh, also online mentoring, etc. So other vetted services that might be useful while they're waiting for someone who's high profile to bring in speakers. Primary schools can sign up for our sister organizations, inspiringthefuture.org. It's called Primary Futures, and that's for careers talks where they can bring people in. And it's all free, and I think that's a really important point. We keep this all free. It's about people volunteering their time and expertise to come in. What to do once you have someone's time and some things to make it go really well. And we know teachers are incredibly busy, as are the speakers. So there's, there's one thing that we suggest for our talks that is useful, and that's having a very short phone call in the months leading up to the weeks leading up to the talk, even if it's five minutes not using email and actually having a conversation to kind of negotiate what you think your students need to hear. Speakers always say to us, well, the school didn't tell me what they wanted, I didn't know what they wanted. And equally, though, the teachers are usually saying, well, tell me what you'd like to speak about, tell me what you think is going to you know, um, be most interesting from your background. So it's really kind of a quick negotiation. You've now heard of the background and work of Speakers for Schools. So now let's turn our attention to one of their most well-known speakers, Jimmy Wales. Jimmy is an American internet entrepreneur and the co-founder of the online encyclopedia Wikipedia. Jimmy began by explaining why he was involved with the charity in the first place. I mean, I I would say I do it for two reasons. Uh, One, I really believe in the idea. I think it's really important um, for young people to um, actually get a chance to meet and talk with people who um, have become successful uh, and so forth. Um, you know, I give talks to various uh, schools that are schools of uh, kids who I know their parents uh, and things like that. Uh, or I know there was one school that was doing a fundraiser for a posh school and they wanted a speaker to help raise money for the school. And they know people who know me or they ask me, 
And that kind of sort of network connections uh, works really well for a certain class of kids. But a lot of kids and their schools, they don't have any connections to people. They don't really know how to get speakers in. And I've always been willing to do it, but they don't. A, they either don't know how to reach people, or B, it doesn't occur to them to think that someone would come out. Uh, and so it's just a great opportunity to go out and talk to these kids. The other reason is it's just fun. Um, I love going out and talking to these kids, and they've got a million questions. Of course, they all use Wikipedia. They all love Wikipedia. Uh, they like to hear my story of how I started it and so forth. So, yeah, it's just great fun. So is there a bit in there about sort of raising their aspirations, opening their eyes to things that previously they wouldn't have been aware of? Is that part of the motivation? Yeah, I, I, it, it is. And I think that's, you know, I think it's important uh, for them to understand, you know, I came from, uh, you know, Alabama, and no one would have ever expected that I would be, you know, uh, where I am today. Um, and so that idea that, hey, you know what, you may have family who are very supportive of you, or you may not have family who are very supportive of you. But guess what? You can you can do interesting things. You don't have to accept the narrow range of choices that you might have thought. Um, you actually have the opportunity to do all kinds of interesting things in life. And uh, you know, hopefully, uh, those of us who go out and talk to the kids can inspire them to do that. And what would you say your core message is when you're going out and, and talking in schools? What's the sort of theme? What are you trying to get across? Well, the main thing that I love to do when I'm speaking to young people, I give a uh, updated uh, version of a speech uh, that I call Failure, Jimmy Wales is really good at it. Uh, and part of my message there is just like, hey, look, if you have this idea about entrepreneurship that's based on looking at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who at age 21 starts this thing and it goes straight to the moon uh, and it's amazing and his life is super charmed, that's not really how entrepreneurship usually works. And I have done a lot of failed businesses, a lot of bad ideas that seemed like a good idea at the time. But I do think it's more important to just get out there and try something. Uh, and fear of failure um, often prevents people from ever even trying. And so what I try to, to tell people is like, look, you know, if you try something and it doesn't work out, hey, at least you tried something. It's interesting. And the truth is employers uh, prefer that. Um, you know, they always find it, particularly, this is something I also talk to cultural leaders and politicians throughout the rest of the world, but in Silicon Valley, this is especially well understood. Uh, you know, if you go to work at a startup or you launch something and it doesn't work out, hey, everybody understands most startups fail, right? That's not a black mark on you. Um, in fact, now you've got interesting experience, you know, based on failing at something. And I just think that principle applies across life that, you know, um, you, the next five years will go by no matter what you do. You might as well do something interesting. And that leads me nicely into my next question, really, which is what are the sort of tools and skills that you feel young people need to have in order to be successful once they've left that world of education? Yeah, well, obviously things have changed a lot. And the era in which you went to school and then you know possibly onward to university and you got a certain amount of training to do a particular career and then you did that career for 40 years... That's long since gone. Most people end up doing two or three or four, even more, completely different things throughout their life. Uh, and that's only going to accelerate. A lot of the jobs that uh, people might have, particularly people who um, are, uh, you know, sort of doing working class types of jobs, those things are changing dramatically and very, very quickly. And so what you really need is the ability to learn. The ability to adapt is incredibly important because 
you know, you may think, okay, well, look, I'm going to get out um, uh, of school and I'm going to do this particular job and that's going to be who I am and what I do. Guess what? That job might not exist in 10 years. Um, and guess what? It might exist but pay very poorly compared to what you thought it would have paid. Uh, and so when you've got that kind of dynamic economy, it's really important to be able to learn. And so in school, uh, it's become much more about really making sure that students have all the tools they need for further education. So in some ways, that's actually very old-fashioned. It's reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, it's really the basics of education are incredibly important. Uh, but it's also incredibly important that you think about, okay, how do I research a new thing? How do I use the internet effectively? Uh, so I'm not just, you know, goofing around online, but if I want to know about something or learn something, I know how to go and do that. And, and when you look at how schools are operating now, how successful do you think schools are at doing that already? Or are there things you think schools could do differently to better prepare their pupils? Well, I'm not an expert on what's going on in schools, so I, I'm, I'm reluctant to give a broad sweeping statement, but I do know that some schools are very good at it and some schools are not good at it. And I think that some teachers are good at it and some teachers are not good at it. Um, I think once people have understood and accepted the lesson that, hey, these kids are going to need to adapt in the future, um, there's no simple career path for them that's, that we can predict today. Once you've accepted that, I think you become a better teacher because you can be more inspiring of your students of the reason why fundamental learning. You know, if someone thinks, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the knowledge and become a black taxi driver, okay, great, that's a really perfectly valid career. Um, that career might not be here in 10 years' time or it might pay very poorly if it all becomes Uber drivers or driverless cars or something like that. And so for that kid, if they're thinking, yeah, well, what, what do I need algebra for? I'm going to be a taxi driver. No, you, you might need algebra. You might need all kinds of things uh, that are incredibly uh, important because you want to retain that ability to learn and change and grow in the future. So once a teacher's understood that, I think they become a better teacher, but then oftentimes they're constrained by a system that hasn't gotten that message yet, and, and so it's a little harder. And there's quite a debate in the world of education at the moment when we're looking at schools in terms of whether schools should be focusing on a knowledge-based curriculum, you know, a lot of learning about sort of facts and knowledge, or whether the focus should be much more on a skills-based curriculum. I'd be interested with your background and whether you have a view on that and where you think schools should be focusing that time. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, based on everything I've just said, obviously I would lean more towards the skills side of things. On the other hand, I'm not sure that there's as sharp a dichotomy between the two as, uh, as some might say. So, you know, certain things I remember in school in the U.S., it was considered to be an incredibly important thing in fourth grade uh, to memorize all the states and capitals of the United States. Okay, that's a fairly useless activity, honestly, because, uh, you know, you can find that out in two seconds. In your pocket, you've got a phone that knows what the states and capitals are. On the other hand, that kind of level of memorization is not important, but actually understanding the general sort of layout of the world and geography and where places are in a way that you don't have to look it up. So that if somebody says Austria, you don't think they mean Australia. Um, and that is a certain amount of basic knowledge learning and, and rote memorization to some extent. So I wouldn't be an extremist on that, but I think it's definitely, um, it's almost like, you need the skills of adding facts of knowledge is, is really important. And if I can bring it back a bit, just to the best times you're going into schools and, and speaking with pupils, what sort of reaction do you get from, from the pupils? How do they respond to the talk, particularly that focus mm -hmm. on you know, that 
and making mistakes, and it's okay to make mistakes. Well, it's interesting, you know, because you know when you're when you're talking to uh, teenagers, uh, you get a wide variety of reactions in the room. Some of them are just they're just happy they're not in their usual class or they're bored. Uh, others. And you see their eyes light up, and you see the spark of like, wow, oh, this is really cool. I mean, of course, all kids love Wikipedia. Like, it's a big part of their life, and uh, so they're always pretty, you know, excited to talk about that and to meet me and so forth. So that's kind of fun. Um, and then on the on the failure stuff again, you know, I think um, I always see a few students uh, who just you can see it in their face that they're like, oh wow, like that's actually really interesting. Like I'm, I feel that a lot of kids may have been in an environment where they think the idea of success is like a lot of pressure not to fail at anything, and the idea that actually in order to succeed you're probably going to fail at a few things is a revelation. Um, I hope they don't use it as an excuse for you know failing their next history test, right? Uh, because that's not the point. The point is you know try something that's beyond what you're able to do. Uh, and you'll probably fail at it, but you'll learn a lot more in the process. So, and, and my final question, put you on the spot a bit here, which is a bit unfair, but which is, um, if you were able to make one change to the way schools operate or the wider education system, you had sort of one magic wish. What do you think you would you would do? I mean, it's a really hard question, um, and I think it very much depends uh, on the location and the region and so forth. I think one of the biggest issues that we have uh, in the U.S., and I, I, I live here in London, but I don't necessarily know the, how, how the school funding is handled here. But in the U.S., uh, the funding is incredibly unequal across different schools. And I'm not just talking about private education versus public education um, or government education. I, I'm just saying between even for government-run schools, between wealthy parts of town and poor parts of town, the funding differential is enormous, and this is not right. Uh, and that is one of the things that we should really be focused on is saying, you know, like there are kids who come from rough areas, rough backgrounds, who have incredible potential, and then they go to a crap school. It's not helping society. Um, it's, not, it's not what you need to do to have a really robust, uh, creative uh, vibrant economy and so forth and so that that would be my biggest thing is to really look at how do we make sure that there's funding equity across um, both poor and rich parts of town. NAHT Edge is a union and professional association aimed at teachers with leadership responsibilities. Whether you're a subject coordinator, year leader, key stage leader, early years leader, SENCO or head of department, we offer full trade union protection and high quality advice. In addition, our weekly newsletter and monthly podcast keeps you up to speed with the latest developments in education. Membership of NAHT Edge costs just £13.50 a month. Find out more by visiting www.nahtedge.org.uk. It's now time to hear from our third guest, Fiona Miller. Fiona is a writer, journalist, school governor and a very prominent campaigner on school issues. In this interview, James talks to Fiona about why she thinks Speakers for Schools does such vital, such important work and also explains her views on the current state of play when it comes to current education policy. Engaging content and revealing insight. In conversation with James Bowen. So what is it you enjoy most about being out in schools and, and speaking to pupils and, and why did you get involved with Speakers for Schools in the first place? Well, I'm 
as Robert Peston says, he's sort of tribally pro-state school and so am I, because I went to a state school, my kids all went to state schools, I've been a governor for 25 years, I write about education, I see all the time the impact that inequality in society has in terms of educational outcomes, and I think Speakers for Schools is one relatively small but important way of addressing that to make sure that pupils in state schools get the same opportunities to engage with the outside world as the, the independent schools do. And that's, I think, what you know, Robert discovered, that he needed to do this because... Robert Preston, that is the founder, because he was invited to go to so many public schools and he was thinking, why doesn't my old school ask me to go back? That's the first thing. The second thing is I like, I, it's really important to get out and visit schools. I mean, I don't think I'd feel comfortable writing about education if I weren't a governor because I'm seeing the impact of policies all the time on my schools. But, I mean, the other way to, do, to get a feel for it is to go out and visit different parts of the country. And Speakers for Schools does, in, in, it, you know, it does allow me to go to very different places. Some things are always the same, but some things are different. Yeah. So what's the similarity you notice, would you say, between the schools? Well, kids are kids. <laughs> young people are young people wherever you go. Most head teachers are wrestling with the same issues. Um, yeah, I would say that's the, the main similarity. But you do see contextual differences. So, for example, you, know, you can go to schools that are very multicultural and other schools that aren't multicultural at all. And coming from London, where all, my, all the local schools around here are very multicultural, it's always a bit of a shock to go into a school that's nearly all white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of when you're out there speaking with pupils... Is there a sort of core message you're trying to get across in your speech? Is there, is there a theme to it? Not or? really. I mean, I think, you know, I think you can do it any which way. And it was interesting because there was a reception last week at number 10, four speakers for schools, and a lot of the guests there were talking about how it is one of the most horrendous experiences they ever have to do. Because I think talking to young people, they're a really tough audience. They get bored quite quickly. They, they need to be engaged very early on. They don't know what they don't know. So you, have to, you can't assume that they'll understand what you're talking about. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that I've, you know, because I'm a, a woman and been a working mother through a lot of my life, I have done lots of different things. I started off as a journalist, but I didn't follow a sort of linear trajectory in the way a lot of men do of, of my generation because I gave up work to my kids and I went freelance and I did something else and then it came back and then I went to work at number 10. So I talked to them a bit about what happens to women in the workplace, because you know, at that stage in their lives, they usually don't r- recognise boys and girls are broadly equal at that point. In fact, girls do better than boys, but what they don't realise is that you know, the mummy track means that women do tend to go on a... You, so the paths diverge and women earn less, and we know all the facts about that. So I talk about equality and women's rights, and then I usually then try and talk about my areas of expertise. So I, I will always say to the schools, it'd be better for me to talk to probably a sixth-form group that's studying sociology or economics or politics. Like my my experience is directly relevant to what they're studying, and when I've done it like that, it's gone very well. Yeah. And what sort of response do you get? Do, do you get a sense that kind of pupils' eyes are open to a world that didn't exist? How do they respond to the talks you give? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the context. You know, some of them are more engaged with the issues than others, which is why now I always try and say, look, I want to talk to an audience that are interested in what I've done. You know, I don't think I'm the right. You know, if I was the Princess of Wales or uh, Princess of Wales, Prince of Wales, or you know, Jimmy Wales or Barack Obama, you know, every, everybody will hang on their words. But I think if you're not a big celebrity, then you need to be talking about something that interests them, is my experience. I think the first, one of the first ones I did, I had a great response from the school, and one of the mothers emailed the teacher and said, I've been trying to get my son interested in feminism, you know, for the last five years of his life. He's shown no interest at all. But then he heard Fiona Miller speak, and he came back, and he, was, he wanted to talk about all the issues that arise through inequality in the workplace and you know, mums and dads and things like that. So, you know, that was nice. Yeah. You know you've connected then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so take a step back uh, for a moment then. We, obviously, it's a rapidly changing world. Mm. Um, how do you think schools can 
best prepare their pupils, not just for the workplace, although obviously that's an important part of it, also sort of kind of 21st century society, which just is, is changing mm. at such a pace. Well, I think, you know, within the constraints of what has become a very narrow curriculum offer, schools have got to try and have the confidence to offer a broader range of experiences. And that's difficult in the current funding climate. So not just, you know, nine GCSEs or three, eight GCSEs and three A-levels, but, you know, extracurricular activities, music, art, culture, drama, speakers from outside, and particularly to offer those opportunities to students who wouldn't otherwise get the chance to do them. I, I, think, and I think that is really important, and to help them to be independent learners. Because I talk about my experience as a, somebody who's done lots of different things in my life. For this generation, that will be the norm. You know, they probably won't have a linear career path. They'll do lots of different things. And we don't know what the world of work is going to be like in 20 years. So people have got to be adaptable and flexible and prepared. And, of course, you you write extensively on education. I'd be interested to kind of get your views on how you see government policy at the moment when it comes to education and schools. I realise that's a a big area. But, you know, what's your view on the kind of direction of travel, particularly, obviously, you go out and speak Mm. with head teachers. And how do you see... Well, I think there are two massive, to the two biggest issues of funding and teacher recruitment, obviously. I think there's a, you know, I've just finished writing this book about the last 30 years of education policy and what followed the 1988 Act, which introduced the idea of diversity, choice and competition. And I recognise that for a lot of younger teachers and indeed parents, that's like the olden days, you know, doesn't mean anything to them. But it's actually terribly important because the context within which they're working now was dictated by what happened in that act. So it introduced the idea of league tables, introduced the idea of Ofsted, introduced the idea of parent choice, introduced the idea of diversity, which is then taken off in a direction that nobody really expected with the rollout of so many academy schools. So I think funding and the teacher recruitment issues are very, very serious, common problems. But I also think that the, the impact of creating such a diverse, fragmented landscape without any clear systems of holding schools to account and the impact of the accountability measures on schools are the other two things I think that most people would, would recognise as pressing issues in their time. Yeah. It's fascinating the way you say that all kind of dates back to that 1988 Act. I must admit, I wasn't no, of aware of that. But it is, it's a bit, I find it a bit worrying, actually, that people don't understand the history. And it came home to me really... Uh, I put this in the book. I was speaking at the Fringe at the Labour Party conference last year, and a young mother spoke, got up and made this very impassioned speech about how primary SATS tests were destroying her child's education and couldn't we abolish them and and I ended up describing this is where my story starts I ended up describing what my children's primary school was like in 1992 it's one of the first schools ever to be inspected by Ofsted and got a terrible terrible report and it was a shockingly bad institution you know there were kids who got to Christmas without any work in their books when the first league tables published only 37% of pupils reached the required level in maths in our school now that was bad, and offset in the league tables forced us to get better. But the trouble is, it's gone too far now. You know, where accountability is actually it's the, it's the sort of cart that's, you know, driving the horse, as it were, rather than the other way around. So we've got to think about how we get a smarter accountability system that doesn't drive so much negative behaviour in the system. And I the think. book sounds fascinating. It, what would be quite good to do, perhaps in a future podcast, is, is to come back and talk about some of the themes in that yeah. book. I think we could probably talk for a long time. Yeah, well, I'm very keen yeah. that people do understand where today's situation comes from because when you go back over 30 years you can track every stage at which that policy developed into what we have now and we're not going to put some of those things right unless we understand why it happened 
Perhaps God. you need to send a copy through to uh, the new Secretary of State. Perhaps that could be... <laughs> well, he probably will remember. I don't know how old he is, but I would imagine... And it was Kenneth Baker, a Conservative reforming education secretary who introduced the idea. But I think, you know, I interviewed him for the book and he said he's appalled by what's happened. It wasn't what he intended at all. So... And I'm going to ask sort of one final question, which I like to ask mm. lots of people who, who we have as podcast guests, which is if you could just make one change um, to the current education system, or to schools perhaps, but if you, you know, had one magic wish, you could do one thing, what, what would it be? Oh God, I feel like I'm on desert island just now. I'm going to actually say, to, I mean, if it was just one single thing, because I've been campaigning for a long time on school admissions, I think we have got to do something about reforming admissions, because the hierarchy of schools we have is very unfair on certain families, and it partly is to do with the fact that we allow too many schools to select their pupils. So I'd go for a fully comprehensive system. And I think I would also, you've got to look at accountability, I've already measured that, and the way it's affecting behaviour in schools. It's a big thanks to you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the School Leadership Podcast. As always, if there are particular people you'd like to hear from in future episodes, please get in touch with us. You can do that via email or send us a message via our Twitter or Facebook account. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can make sure every single episode comes to you as soon as it becomes available by subscribing on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback and I'll see you next time. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome. Our email is info at neht.org.uk. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT EDGE is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT EDGE or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News.